This morning we are in John chapter 13, the end of John chapter 13 and into John chapter 14. If you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible with you, you can borrow one from us. In the back of the pews there in front of you, you will find um, a pew Bible uh, scattered throughout those rows. And uh, you can turn to page number 847 in that pew Bible. If you don't own your own Bible, we'd love for you to take that Bible as a gift from us. Uh, You can take that home, and uh, we want for you to have a copy of God's Word uh, for yourself. And so, uh, please take that if you would. John chapter 13, starting in verse 36, is where we'll be this morning. As the Upper Room Discourse continues, we should recognize that each section we study is very interconnected with the whole dialogue that Jesus is having with His Men, and, and, and we are reminded this morning that this is now minus Judas Iscariot, who um, has gone to betray Jesus. And so these words, these very intense and intentional words from Jesus here uh, to his men are, are so, so important for our understanding of what is about to happen, not only in Jesus going to the cross, but also what is about to happen in salvation history, according to not only his life, death, and resurrection, But also, uh, coming up, we'll see the sending of the Spirit uh, who indwells us. Jesus says that He is leaving, He's departing. That's part and parcel of what we're looking at this morning and what He has to say about that. So just kind of keep in mind that there's all this interconnectedness and, 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 and ways that we ought to be referring back to sections that we've already looked at and looking forward to those. This is all one discourse, and we don't want to lose the context of that. And of course, we also don't want to lose the broader context of the, the, the Bible as a whole, the meta-narrative of Scripture, and, and really the, the, um, the way in which this is the pinnacle of what God's plan is. We'll actually see that this morning in our study of this portion of the discourse, but just kind of keep that in mind. In this section, we are looking at how Christ continues to talk about His departure and what it means for them who follow him, not only the disciples to whom he is speaking it to, but God in his providence has seen fit to give this to us as holy scripture, and therefore it is meant for us as well. If you're able to, would you please stand with me as we do our New Testament scripture reading in John chapter 13. We're actually going to go back to verse 31 and then read to chapter 14 and verse 6. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. You read along as I read aloud You don't have to read aloud, just follow along as I read aloud. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle John writes, when he had gone out, that is, Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while that I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I told the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You may be seated. May the reading of God's word allowed both in the Old and New Testament be a blessing to you. Would you join me once again in prayer? Lord, we pray as we come to your holy, infallible, inerrant, and inspired word that you would guide us by your spirit for those of us who are in Christ. Lord, we believe that your spirit inspired these words in the original autographs and can now help us as we study together. We pray, Lord, for that. And I pray for those who do not know you, that they would come to know you, that your spirit would work in convicting in sin and righteousness, that those who do not know you would be made alive this morning, they would be given the gifts of faith and repentance that they might, Lord, be one with the body, be adopted into the family, given new life, new birth. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I think of our church, our local assembly, as joyfully reformed. That is, we stand in the tradition of the Reformation. Perhaps you're unfamiliar with what that means. In brief, in God's providence, he led a Roman Catholic monk, Martin Luther, through the scriptures to recapture the gospel, which was not lost, but what the medieval Roman Catholic Church had veiled. The gospel, again, was not lost, but it was certainly buried to some degree. And God, through Luther, brought about a revival. And through Luther's work and those who followed him, men such as Calvin and Bucer, Knox and Zwingli, and then the later English Baptists, the church would take a fresh breath of gospel air. The bedrock of the Reformation later would be distilled into five solas. And this is probably uh, where you run into some familiarity here when you hear about the Reformation, the five solas of the Reformation, sola scriptura. The scriptures alone are authoritative. Um, not that we don't uh, look to any sort of church history or tradition to help us along the way to see how others have, um, have interpreted scripture or have gotten to where they have gotten, but, but the scripture alone is our final authority. Solus Christus, Christ alone. The focus of our uh, text this morning, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, Christ says. Solus Christus, Christ alone. The only way, the only way to God is through Christ. Sola gratia. Sola gratia, grace alone. It is not by works, but by grace, as Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, by faith alone. The conduit by which we are brought to God is through 
faith. Faith is not uh, an object. It is an exercise. It is something that is given to us. It is something that we uh, 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 come to God through. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vehicle. And then soli deo gloria. Soli deo gloria. For God's glory alone. For God's glory alone. Not for the glory of men, but for the glory of God. These combine to make a bedrock of doctrine for the recapturing of the gospel. This morning we hear how Jesus describes himself as the only way to reconciliation with the triune God. Solus Christus, if you will, this morning. Following to the kingdom is what we have called this. And, and as we think about following Jesus this morning, uh, we, we do certainly think about times where he says, follow me or take up your cross and follow me. The implications of which, of course, is that he does go to the cross. But the, the way to the kingdom, the way to the kingdom is through Christ alone. Through Christ alone. In fact, the early church, uh, even in the Bible we see this, it was called what? The way. The way. Even as Jesus describes himself as the way, we hear the early church call themselves the way. Not to be confused with the cult known as the Way International, by the way. Um, you should uh, repudiate that cult. They do not believe in the Trinity. But, uh, and, and they don't believe in grace alone. But this is what the church called themselves. Following to the kingdom. Following who? Following Jesus, the, the one who is the way. So that's the main idea this morning. You can see this written for you on the back of your bulletin. If you're tuning in to the live stream this morning, it should have been sent to you. The way to reconciliation with God is only through Christ. The way to reconciliation with God is only through Christ. And I want us to see this morning three elements of the continued conversation of Jesus' departure. Once again, this is the context. Jesus is talking about leaving. He's talking about leaving. And, and so now they're wondering, where is he going? Where is he going? And he's, he's continuing to answer this question. And that is the first point this morning, the first element, the question, where are you going? The question, where are you going? What Jesus has said previously apparently comes off as very ominous to Peter, as it would for any of us who do not know the next part of the story. They didn't have the advantage of seeing into the future and seeing what was about to happen, though Jesus had spoken of it many times. Remember, their minds are very restricted to the idea that the kingdom is going to be something that Jesus is going to bring right then in a very physical way. He is going to conquer Rome. He is going to bring the kingdom back to Israel and um, he is their leader, their conqueror. This is the way to the kingdom, they think. So Peter is thinking, hmm, this doesn't sound very uh, conquering to me. Where are you going? The question is related to Jesus previously speaking of his departure. And now Simon wants to know where Jesus is going. Look at it again with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replies with a very interesting answer in light of what he has said previously. He said to them in verse 33 that where he is going, they cannot come. I explained last week that this must first refer to the cross. The way to Christ's glory and the sense of his return to glory after the incarnation is through the cross. We looked at Hebrews 12, 2 together last week. For the joy that was set before him, 
The joy of what? The, the, the glorification of now His incarnated body. He is with the Father still, in the sense that He never stops being the eternal Son of God, but He is incarnated, and so this incarnated Christ is going to return to the Father in full glory, and that is through the way of the cross. Notice as well that Peter's question seems to skip over Jesus' command to love one another. I mean, Peter kind of just skims right over that. This is what Jesus says in of that, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one, one another. And Peter's like, yeah, 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 Jesus, but what about where are you going? Love, love, love. Okay, got gotcha. you. Where are you going? And he just kind of skips right over that. But Jesus graciously answers Peter's question. And I would suggest he implies by his answer that Peter has missed the point. Verse 36, where I am going, you cannot follow me, but will follow afterward. Jesus is, in, in a sense, I think here saying, Peter, your focus is on the wrong thing. I've told you what you are to do. Currently, you are not going to follow me to where I am going. You are to stay here. You are to love one another. You are to follow my commandment, which is ultimately love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he's going to give them out of that a great commission after he resurrects, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. And so I think Jesus here is trying to refocus Peter's um, refocus his focus. Is that okay to say that? Trying to refocus his focus uh, to what he has said. Peter, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. What does Jesus mean by this? Well, Peter, like all believers, will join the Lord ultimately in the eternal state. As he has spoken of his glory, the final step of glorification is walking with God, dwelling with God in glory in a, in a resurrected, glorified state where sin can no longer touch us. It's not even a threat any longer. But in a more specific sense, Peter will indeed follow Jesus to a cross himself. This is the manner in which it seems that Peter dies according to history, and Jesus seems to reference this when later in this very book he states to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. It seems that Jesus, even at the end of the Gospel of John here, is telling Peter the manner in which he's going to die. He's going, you're going to stretch out your arms, Peter, and the same manner as I do. So certainly Peter is going to follow him. By the way, history tells us that Peter first watched his own wife crucified upon the cross. That was part of his torture, was to watch his bride be crucified. And then tradition tells us that Peter did not feel honored uh, did, did not uh, feel uh, that he should be honored in the same way as dying as the Lord Jesus, so he was hung upside down on a cross. But here in this instance, I think that Jesus is once again diverting the focus from the kingdom the disciples expected back to the kingdom that he establishes at the cross, a spiritual kingdom that is exemplified by love. 
as he has just shown them by washing their feet and instructing them concerning how they ought to love one another. Peter, this is what you are to do now. You are to to follow in what I have just given the example of. Where I am going next, you're not following me. But follow that last thing I did in loving one another in such a humble way as washing one another's feet. Love each other in that way. Well, in in typical Petrine, that's Peter fashion, this is not good enough. I, I think uh, I think Peter is one of those people. It's all or nothing, right? Um, remember what, when Jesus is washing his feet? Um, Lord, you wash my feet, and and he says, uh, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. And he says, Well, then wash all of me. So here he does something very similar. He says, uh, Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my very life for you. Once again, missing the point of what Jesus is saying, he jumps to the extreme, right? We must, though, recognize the boldness that Peter expresses here. Perhaps he is beginning to understand what Jesus has said about giving up his life, and Peter seems to say that he is willing to die in Jesus' place, which is so interesting, since Jesus will die in his place. And yet Peter will go on to die bearing the name of Christ. Can you see the echoes here? Peter, you're going to follow me to this demise. But first you must stay and do as I've instructed you. Jesus challenges what Peter says here, but does so with a hint of irony. Look at verse 38. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Where's the irony there? Peter does lay down his life for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus knows in his heart of hearts, in his mind, in his eternal uh, divine knowledge that Peter will indeed lay down his life, but not before something else happens. He says, Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is indeed what happens. We know the story. We know that Peter does deny Jesus. We need to contrast Peter's denial with Judas's betrayal. It is an interest, it's interesting to notice the juxtaposition in that Judas betrays Jesus unto death. And Judas then goes and kills himself. Peter, though... He does deny Jesus three times and thinks himself therefore disqualified from ministry that Jesus comes and restores him, as we'll see at the end of the Gospel of John. In fact, that's where Jesus tells him, you will lay down your life for me. It's kind of an interesting echo of what's going on here. Peter, it's not time for you to die for me. In fact, you say you'll lay down your life for me, but in in fact, you're going to deny me three times when you have the opportunity to say that you know me. As I face death. And then. Peter. After the resurrection. What does he say? I mean we don't hear these. We don't see these words. But we somewhat hear this. And what he says. He says guys. I'm going fishing. I'm going back to the old way of life. I I, I think I've, I've. I've lost. I've been disqualified from ministry. 
And then Jesus comes to the beach there, we know, and restores him. We'll look at that when we get to the end of John. But we must recognize the difference in that. Just a point of application for us real quickly. Dear ones, there are ups and downs in the Christian life. One minute we're on fire like crazy. We can't help but tell someone of the Lord. We, we're so excited to love our brothers and sisters so well. And then we sin or we let a brother or sister down, which is sin as well. And we just think, man, I can't do this. Or we deny the Lord, as Peter did. We deny knowing the Lord and functionally one way or the other. What we see in Peter, even as the Lord comes and restores him, is that every true believer will always confess. And thus the Lord will restore them. But we must recognize that there is a group of people like Judas. There are those in the church who would feign a following of Christ, but they are not truly His. They know the right things to say. They know the proper words to make it seem like they're a Christian. They know the way to act around other believers, but there is no integrity in their life. They are not grieved by their sin. They are not sorrowful before the Lord. So my question this morning is, are you the first? Are you Peter or are you Judas? (laughs) Certainly, if we're in Christ, we are restored. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But, Jesus did say to those who thought that they knew him, depart from me, I never knew you. But Lord, we did many things in your name. We healed the sick, we cast out demons. And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. My call this morning to you, if you've not trusted in Christ, or if you're faking some sort of a Christianity, is to turn from that Facade and trust in Christ alone. If you are in Christ, accept and receive the forgiveness of Jesus, not only at the point of your justification, but as you continue to walk with him. We are going to fail, brothers and sisters. I fail all the time. Just ask my wife. She will tell you the truth. Yes, he fails all the time. Well, it's clear that these words have troubled the disciples. So Jesus now seeks to comfort them about the destination, about where he is going, as we see in our second point, the destination, the Father's house. The destination, the Father's house. Again, again, Jesus is addressing the idea that his his statements are troubling. Let not your hearts be troubled, he says in chapter 14 and verse 1. Believe in God, believe also in me. The issue he is addressing is one of belief. It's one of belief. It's one of objective belief. In whom are you trusting? This isn't what you want to hear, dear disciples, is what he is saying. Your hearts are troubled at hearing of me departing. Your hearts are troubled to hear of a betrayal earlier. They still don't know who it is. They're questioning that. Your hearts are troubled to hear of a denial from Peter. 
who, by the way, is likely their leader. And so to hear this is like, what? The guy who leads us is going to deny the Lord? No, it can't be. It's an issue of belief. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Dr. S. Lewis Johnson talks about how there are a few ways in the original language to understand this believe in God, believe also in me. And he takes them, and I think properly so, as indicative. Believe in God. That's what you ought to do. And as you believe in God, believe also in me. To believe in God is to believe in the Son. We're going to see in a moment where Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And he says, Philip, if I've been with you so long that you do not know that when you see me, you see the Father. We're going to get to that in two weeks. Again, interconnected here. To believe in God is to believe in the Son and vice versa. Jesus emphasizes this again in in, in these verses that we see ahead of us. Look at them with me real quickly. Again, we'll get to these in a couple weeks. But chapter 14 and verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and is it, enough? it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Let me just pause for a second and take your mind back to chapter 1 and uh, uh, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the only glory of the only begotten, fa- uh, only begotten Son who is from the Father. Right? And then in verse 18, it says that no one at any time has seen God, but the Son reveals Him. Again, John in his prologue is giving us the theology that he learned from Jesus. To see me is to see the Father. Verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. In other words, how can I be doing the things I'm doing if I am not God? And I'm giving that affirmation to you. Back to the verses that we're looking at this morning. Jesus now reveals the destination of those whose foundation is belief in God. It is the very house of the Father. Look at what it says. Verse 2, in my father's house are many rooms. I know some of you grew up with the King James and it said mansions and you were looking forward to a mansion. It's just a room. But it's a room in the father's house, right? I mean, that's pretty awesome. I've got a room up over the hill. What? No, mansion. It doesn't fit as well, right? Remember that old hymn? If it were not so, I would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. He uses this familial language, familial dwellings. And that's the way it was in the, uh, the, in the ancient Near East. Um, when uh, a family was established, there was, would be a main home. And then as children would go forth from their homes and uh, get married, they would come back and they would just attach their room to the father's house. It's not that way anymore. We just moved Karis into her own apartment two days ago. She's only... Th- like three minutes away, but it's not attached to our house. We don't do that like that anymore. But that's the way it was back in those days. And that's, it's not so much about the mansion or about the room. It's about being attached to the Father's house. By the way, what is the Father's house? Is, it not, is He not reigning over an entire universe? <laughs> We're going to talk about that in just a minute. This is the content of the promise that they must believe, that Jesus has told them 
He is going to prepare a place for them, and he will come again and bring them with him. Brothers and sisters, let me just pause for a moment and say, we're going, to, we're going to get into this a little bit more. I can tell this is going to be a long sermon already. So many thoughts are popping in my mind. Our hope is not just a temporal hope, a, a here and now hope. It is an eschatological hope. It is an end times hope. It is not just a hope for salvation in the sense of here and now, not just eternal life in the sense of um, I, I don't have to go to uh, the, the place of torment for forever, which is true, yes and amen, but it is about being in the Father's house. It is about dwelling with Him. It is not just a, a here and now hope. It is a, it is a hope that, that John, the same author in First John, propels us to purity. He who hopes in these kinds of things keeps himself pure. But again, as we're, think, as we're kind of get, trying to get in the minds of the disciples, this is not the kingdom the disciples thought, but it is the kingdom of God's design. So we need to understand, once again, the, the idea of the Father's house, house, both culturally and theologically. Again, the, the family's houses are attached to the Father's house. Theologically, as I said, the whole universe is the dwelling of God. And the Edenic reality, the, the Garden of Eden reality of God dwelling with man will not just be restored, but taken beyond to the glory of God filling the creation. If you'd like to read something on that, you can read my dissertation. I will not share that in whole with you this morning. But we are headed to something better. We are not heading back to Eden. We're heading to something greater. We're heading to the, the glory of the glorification of all of creation and mankind. And one thing we must recognize here as we think about this reality of dwelling with God. We know that Adam did dwell with God, but imperfectly. Right? He fell. In this, we see where Jesus succeeds, where Adam fails. What was the, the, what was the mandate that God gave to Adam? He said, fill the earth, multiply, right? Have dominion over it, fill the earth, and multiply, right? Extend the boundaries of the garden to the whole earth so that the, the whole earth is filled with the glory of God and will have this massive people and place that glorify God because it's all about worship of God. He's the only one who deserves it. So take this, I, I think it's like a, a, a picture of the temple, Take this temple garden and expand it to the ends of the earth. And Adam, before too long, fails at that. My friend Dr. Joel Wood said it was probably about 15 minutes. Adam fails at the mandate. He fails to be a proper prophet, priest, and king. Does that sound familiar? Where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. What does Jesus say? He says, my kingdom is not of this what? This world, right? If it were, my people would have risen up and demanded that you not kill me. So we must first understand the kingdom as a spiritual kingdom. A spiritual kingdom. God is bringing people into his family. <clears throat> and what does Jesus do? Again, we go back to this mandate. Go into all the world and make disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation. So what happens? All around the world, 
the earth is filled with his glory. How? Every tribe, tongue, and nation, every person from those tribes, tongues, and nations that have come to faith in him do what? Peter says they proclaim forth the excellencies of him, right, who has brought them out of darkness into light. Now, am I saying there's not going to be a physical kingdom? No, I totally believe there's going to be a physical kingdom. But right now, how has Jesus fulfilled this mandate? He has fulfilled it spiritually. And yet we long for the time where heaven is on earth and our dwelling is like that. We cannot grasp the fullness of the eternal state and dwelling perfectly with God because not only have we not experienced the reality of dwelling with Him without sin, no one, not Adam and Eve, have ever dwelt with Him without the threat of sin. But that threat has been eliminated at the cross. And we live in this tension of the already not yet. Sin no longer has reign over us, but guess what? We still sin. There, sin will not even be present. How does one dwell with, the, with God in all of His glory when sin is threatening? They can't. Otherwise, we would make the same sin that Adam did. No, Christ has defeated sin at the cross, and we are able to say no to sin, but one day, brothers and sisters, sin will not even be a part of the equation. I, I, I echo your amen because I hate sin. I hate my sin. I hate the way it makes me feel distant from God and from my family and from you. I hate the way that it tries to corrupt my heart and my mind. Oh, for the day when sin will not be a part of the equation. But the object of our faith in, in all of this is the triune God. This is the foundation for the destination. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house. The, the promise of the Father's house is for those who have believed in God and in Christ. And this promise is ours that if He goes to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And it is a sure promise. If He goes, He has gone. Therefore, it's an if-then. If this is what is going to happen, and it does happen, first conditional clause, then this is what will happen. I will come again and receive you to myself. Brothers and sisters, we need to be encouraged by this hope. And yet, we think about this, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. And we must know that there are some sitting here this morning that have not believed. So if you were within my hearing this morning, whether sitting in this room this morning or, or via video and you have not believed the good news of Jesus Christ, let me say to you again, there is no other way we will see Jesus say in a minute to the Father to be reconciled to God but through Him. You must turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone. And then the question for those of us who are in Christ is, are we encouraging and challenging each other with this truth? The encouragement is that this is the destination for those of us who are in Christ. Therefore, whatever trials we are facing pale in comparison to the ultimate end to which we are headed. And the goal and treasure of that is God himself. 
Are, are we longing to see loved ones who have passed on before us? Yes and amen. But, but as we see them, they will beckon us to turn our attention to the Lord Jesus Christ and give Him glory and honor and praise. Listen to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians four thirteen through 13-18. You can turn there if you like. I'm just going to read it though. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Let me pause for a moment. Does that not sound like to the ends of the earth, uh, the gospel is going forth and people will bring glory to God? The object of heaven is God himself. He is our treasure. Therefore... What is the encouragement we're looking for this morning as we're facing trials and as we're in the midst of this life that is full of sin and as we deal with our own sin and we deal with the way that, ways that people have sinned against us and we deal with the, the corruption of sin in this world, what is the hope? So we do not lose heart, Paul says. Though our outer self is wasting away, and some of us are saying as our knees are creaking and and our backs are aching, yes and amen, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Brothers and sisters, are we encouraging our own hearts with this truth? Listen, if you are looking to the things of this world to satisfy, you will always come up short. If you're looking to the things of this world to um, bring you hope and enjoyment, not that there aren't temporary hopes and enjoyments in those things, but ultimately... It will fall short. If you see these kind gifts from God as from his hand and you turn your attention to him and say, yes, Lord, thank you. I know that my ultimate love and life is, is, is to you and, and for you. We look to the things that are not seen and are transient, but the things that are unseen and eternal. That is how we encourage one another. It's also not only a word of comfort, it's a word of conviction, is it not? Are we living in light of this? Are we living as if we are a part of the kingdom of God now? The challenge is to live life now in light of our life then. (laughs) We are not to sit in the easy chair of grace and not see that God has by that same grace saved us And also called us to live in the power of that grace and every aspect of our lives for his glory, for the sake of the gospel, through the great commandment and the great commission. So uh, what I'm saying in short is get off your duff and, and live for God, okay? If you don't know what a duff is, ask someone else, they'll tell you. Are we calling each other to live in this way? Are we lovingly coming alongside of one, and I need this, and you need this. doesn't matter that I'm the guy up here who expounds it. It probably means I need it more. Are you coming alongside of one another and saying, brother and sister, live today for the glory of Christ. Nothing else matters. 
Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't things that we are doing in the here and now. God says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that doesn't mean just proclaiming the gospel. It does mean that uh, ultimately, but it means as we love our neighbors, as we walk, we are telling them the truth. Speak the truth in love carries with it the idea that we are already in the process of loving someone when we speak the truth to them. So lovingly calling people to repent of their sins and trust in Christ, but also walking alongside, living life together, loving as Jesus is called. How can we wash each other's feet if we're not even in each other's homes? Like, oh, gross, am I going to have to actually do that? Well, maybe. But it implies something about the closeness of the body. Are we loving each other and living in this way? Are we loving, confronting sin, lovingly confronting sin in this way? Interestingly, after Jesus calls them, or I'm sorry, after Jesus tells them about the destination, he also tells them they already know the way to that destination at which they are surprised. Look at what he says in verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. And... In a very rare occasion, Thomas speaks up. Thomas said to him in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? This is a very honest question. However, it is one that does show that the disciples still do not understand. If we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way to where you're going? Now that makes sense, right? Right? It's kind of like when God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, you need to go to another country. And Abraham's like, well, if God said it, I guess I'm going to go. Boom, he goes. Like, where is he going? And if he doesn't know where he's going, how does he know to get where he's going to? You know? If, if I were to come to you and say, hey, why don't you come over to our house this afternoon? And you have no idea where we live. Well, I don't know where we're going. What's the way? Right? Or what if I were just to say, hey, we're going to go to my favorite restaurant. Come meet us there. And that's all I give you. What's the... Well, Mike knows. That was a bad illustration. On my part. So I don't know what your favorite restaurant is. Mike does. How do I know the way there? So the disciples just aren't... Jesus has told them, right? He said, I'm going to the Father. I, the way to the Father is through the cross. I'm going to be glorified. If I'm going there, I'm also going to prepare a place for you. I, I, I'm coming back to get you. We're, we're going back together, right? Thomas very honestly says, Jesus, I'm so confused right now. Where are you going? And if you're telling us that we're going to go there too, how do we get there? There is an interest in knowing the way to get there. They want to know. He is, of course, referring, first of all, to the cross, as we saw last week. The way to glory is through the cross. Therefore, Jesus tells them a truth that is familiar to anyone who's been a Christian for very long. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
As we have been saying throughout the Gospel of John, here is another one of these Jesus, uh, the, these statements that Jesus says, I am, an I am statement. He previously has said, I am the bread from heaven, referring how he is the true manna from God. He is the one who ultimately satisfies. He says, I am the light of the world, referring to the light that brings life and yet lays bare sin. He says, I am the door or the gate, referring to the sheepfold, uh, that, that only, the only way to be a, one of his sheep is to enter through him, using that same metaphor and in the same context says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And so as we start combining all these I am statements, by the way, when he says I am, he is drawing attention back to the Old Testament, which is Yahwehic language, I am that I am, uh, the, the, the name of God. He is saying, I am Yahweh God. Therefore, the only way to God is through me. What is the way to the Father? Jesus. What is the truth? Jesus. What is a life? Jesus. These cannot be fully understood without going to the rest of what Jesus says here. No one can come to the Father except through Him. The way to the Father, to reconciliation to the triune God, is exclusively through Jesus. He is the truth. He is the embodiment of the truth that God, uh, uh, of God that came to dwell among humanity. Think again of the words from the prologue. John 1 and verse 14. And the Word, the eternal Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace. And what? Are you tracking? Are you sleeping? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And earlier in the prologue, he says in verse 4, In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. And in verses 12 and 13, And to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? The children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Notice the language here. Born of God. This is life, new life. I am the way, the only way. I am the truth. And I am the life. This statement from Jesus has several theological implications and probably more than I thought of in my studies. One theological implication is what we call exclusivism. Exclusivism. There is no other way to be reconciled to God than through Christ. And hear me, you must be reconciled to God. And there is no other way We are not inclusivists, we are exclusivists. There is no other way to be made right with God than through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not a wheel without the hub, there is God and all these spokes to a way to God. No, there is one way to God and it is through Christ. We are exclusivists. Another theological implication is Trinitarian theology. This is the eternal plan set forth from before the foundation of the world. Think about the words of Paul in Ephesians 1 where he, through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, shows us that the inseparable operations of the Trinity work themselves out in salvation history. Uh, We don't have time to go there. Scratch down and look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 and just write down every time it refers to the Father and to Christ and the Holy Spirit. Salvation is thoroughly a Trinitarian work, and we are seeing the outworkings of that here in what Jesus says. It also has 
implications on what we would call Reformed soteriology, the doctrines of grace. This is what the Reformation was recapturing. Solus Christus, Christ alone. There is no other name under heaven and earth by which men can be saved. There is no other mediator between God and men besides Christ. There is only one high priest. And it's not the guy with the funny hat in Rome. There's only one high priest, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. Solus Christus. Please hear me. If you believe that you have been reconciled to the triune God through any other means than through Christ, you are lost this morning. You are not in Christ if you do not see your salvation as exclusively through Christ. It's not me trying to be a meanie. That's me lovingly telling you to turn from your sin and trust in Christ alone to be reconciled to God. You need to turn from your sin and trust in Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection. If you are in Christ, rest in his finished work. Why can I rest? Because he is the way the truth, and the life. I can't do it. I'm not the way, the truth, and the life for myself. He is the way, the truth, and the life. I rest in His finished work because the work is finished. And at the same time, He is the way in which we also live. How do I live out my Christian life if the work is finished? I'm not living in such a way as to earn anything from God because Christ has already earned it. But it's not my righteousness that I exercise anyway. It's Christ's that's been imputed to me. As in Adam all die, in Christ all shall live. All who are in Christ live in Christ. It, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Right, Paul says in Galatians 2.20. I live out of that righteousness. I'm not trying to earn anything. I, I can rest in Christ at the same time. I can actively uh, pursue the things of God. I can hate sin. I can battle sin. I can trust Him that He is the way, the truth, and the life all at the same time. Not because of anything within me, but by the power of His righteousness, the power of His love that is poured out in our hearts by the Spirit. He is the way in which we also live. Listen to this prayer from the Valley of Vision as our prayer to live as such. Let us pray. The name of this prayer is Christ alone. This is our, our prayer of benediction. O oh God, thy main plan and the end of thy will is to make Christ glorious and beloved in heaven where he is now ascended, where one day all the elect will behold his glory and love and glorify him forever. Though here I love him but little, may this be my portion at last. In this world that has given me a beginning, one day it will be perfected in the realm above. Thou hast helped me to see and know Christ, though obscurely, to take him, receive him, to possess him, love him, to bless him in my heart, mouth, life. Let me study and stand for discipline and all the ways of worship out of love for Christ. 
and to show my thankfulness, to seek and know his will from love and to hold it in love and daily to care for and keep this state of heart. Thou hast led me to place all my nature and happiness in oneness with Christ and having heart and mind centered only on him and being like him in communicating good to others. This is my heaven on earth, but I need the force, energy, impulses of thy spirit to carry me on the way to my Jerusalem. Here it is my duty to be as Christ in this world, to do as he would do, to live as he would live, to walk in love and meekness. Then would he be known. Then would I have peace in death. Lord, this is our prayer. And we pray for those who do not know you that they would come to know you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.